1: University Press Books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New
0: Books Network.
1: Hello, hello, and welcome to this new episode of the uh, NBN History of Science uh, podcast uh, series. This, uh, uh, today, I uh, have the uh, honor to be joined by Professor uh, Kenneth Caneva, uh, who is uh, Emeritus Professor at the University of North uh, Carolina and uh, uh, who will uh, be discussing with uh, uh, with me about uh, his uh, uh, new book uh, Helmholtz and the conservation of uh, energy. So, thank you for uh, for joining uh, us uh, today, Professor Professor Canela. So, um, I will, uh, as usual, uh, give you the floor so you can uh, present yourself to our uh, to our uh, listeners, and uh, uh, then we will be uh, starting discussing about your uh, your new uh, publications.
0: Sure, um, uh, my focus has been pretty much my entire career on 19th century physics. Um, I wrote a book on Robert Meyer, uh, this one on Helmholtz. I've also worked on other other people in the conservation of energy. Uh, that's my topic. In In terms of my overall interests, what has always concerned me is trying to understand why people believe what they do. Where do, where do new ideas come from? Why are they attractive? Uh, why are, they, why are they ultimately accepted? And that's really the, the, uh, the, the background position that I, that I took in looking at the conservation of energy. The, the, the concept of energy is not intuitively obvious at all. And the conservation of energy um, was difficult for people either to understand and accept. And so my task, as best I could fulfill it, was to understand where the ideas came from and why they became acceptable to people.
1: Thank you. Well, this uh, is uh, um, you, you. state uh, you make the statement in the introduction of your uh, of your new book. Uh, you uh, your goal is uh, uh, you speak you explain very clearly that uh, uh, the work that is necessary to. Reconstruct the train of thought of uh, of uh, of the scientists and how um, what difficulties and uh, and challenges that this uh, this work uh, in uh, implies. So your new book is uh, about a a very absolutely fascinating uh, polymath. I think that he could could be defined uh, scientist. uh, German scientist uh, of the 19th century, Hermann von, uh, von Helmholtz. Can you uh, tell us something about uh, this uh, uh, this uh, scientist and uh, the uh, importance of his work uh, on uh, uh, the conservation of, uh, of uh, energy?
0: Sure. Well, as you just indicated, Helmholtz was a real polymath, worked in a variety of, of, of areas, which I haven't concerned myself. Uh, I I enter the the Helmholtz universe via a fairly narrow door, that is the conservation of energy. That said, the conservation of energy, I I would would argue, is is the single most important development in physics in the 19th century. So it's a pretty big deal. And uh, Helmholtz played a a central role in that development. Uh, We can talk about more of those details perhaps further on in in this interview.
1: Yes, and uh, well, this uh, mm, th- this question of the conservation of energy, uh, as you uh, as you um, develop at length in your in your uh, in your book, uh, it was really a, a central topic at the center of uh, uh, the debates of. Uh, of scientists, uh, of uh, physicists, uh, at, uh, uh, at the time, not just in Germany, but uh, uh, but in uh, uh, at an international level. So, why did, was this question so uh, so important and so problematic?
0: Well, it, it it originally a question that physicists particularly dealt with. Let me let me step back a bit and, and set some important context here. In the eighteen forties. Uh, there was a very sharp distinction between physics on the one hand and mechanics on the other, sometimes known as rational mechanics. Physics dealt with observable phenomena, whether by simple observation or experimentation. Mechanics, rational mechanics, was a field of mathematics. Physicists did not study mechanics uh, in their education. Uh, One of the things that makes the conservation of energy important is that it was the the means, the vehicle by which physics was transformed in the course of the 19th century. Um, Helmholtz was trained as a a medical doctor, as you well know, uh, but he had a very strong, many strong strong side interests, including 18th century rational mechanics and physics in general. one of the things that characterized mechanics that did not characterize physics was the attempt to find basic principles. In mechanics, there was the principle of the conservation of vis-viva. Let's not worry about what that was. Uh, the principle of least action, et cetera. So mechanics as its own science was conceived as a, as, as a deductive system um, stemming as, as much as possible from a few basic assumptions, a few basic principles. Physics at the time knew nothing of this at all. There there were no underlying principles in physics comparable to that. If we we fast forward to the end of the century, what one finds is especially thermodynamics uh, conceived as resting on two fundamental principles. Eventually, the conservation of energy, the first law of thermodynamics, and the second law having to deal with entropy. And in fact, if we take the story a little farther, uh, you know, Einstein sought to base physics on several principles: the constancy of the speed of light for all observers, the indistinguishability of acceleration uh, from gravitation, and, and the like. Well, he took that image of science from thermodynamics. If we if we then go back in time to to Helmholtz's day, uh, although thermodynamics was the most important area in which this idea developed. Initially, it wasn't the conservation of energy that was important. It was the equivalence between heat and work. You perform a certain amount of work, say by friction, you produce a certain amount of heat. And there turns out to be a constant relationship between those two. And so until the uh, 1870s, 1880s, the first law of thermodynamics was not the conservation of energy. It was the equivalence of heat and work which is to say that the route by which the conservation of energy secured itself as a principle of physics was a long one. And it, and it took decades of the 19th century uh, before it achieved that status. Helmholtz, having come in this regard from, um, from mechanics, uh, looked for a basic principle. That was one of his problems in being understood. Um, interestingly, out there, <laughs> It took me a while to realize its significance. The subtitle of Helmholtz's work on the conservation of force was a physical memoir. And I long wondered, wh- why, why say that? And the reason was that he wanted to, he hoped to tell physicists, hey, pay attention, guys, this is for you. Despite the fact that the book is full of, of mathematics, I intend this to be for physicists. Well, he didn't succeed very well because physicists weren't trained. To, uh, to read that kind of work, and they, and they were primed to look for that kind of principle. Um, perhaps let me pause there and, and you can uh, ask further questions.
1: Yes, absolutely. The question of uh, the uh, intended audience that Helmut had in mind and uh, what the audience that eventually he uh, he reached best is uh, it's absolutely it's absolutely fascinating. But uh, I would like to ask you something about uh, what were uh, Helmut's uh, reference or uh, uh, text or uh, mentors uh, that uh, brought him to the uh, conclusion that uh, he published uh, in his uh, landmark uh, uh, work uh, uh, published in 1847. Uh, uh,
0: 40, uh, okay, uh, an important topic here, which I'm going to put aside for a second to come back to it, is that there's a, there's a, a profound confusion regarding Helmholtz's work. It's really kind of ironic. Helmholtz called his work on the conservation of force, in German, of course, and that later became translated as the conservation of energy. Yet Helmholtz in 1847 did not have a concept of energy let alone a principle of the conservation of energy. He only gradually came to transform his own view of what he was talking about by the 1850s on into the 1850s. The irony is that although in 1847 by the conservation of force, he didn't mean the conservation of energy That term stuck and kind of retrospectively uh, Helmholtz was credited with having introduced the conservation of energy way before he had any notion of the conservation of energy. That's part of what I deal with. To answer your question more directly, um, which I understand is where did Helmholtz come from? Well, my my modus operandi here was (laughs) to read everything (laughs) and to glean from, from Helmholtz's writings Uh, what he said about what was important to him. He mentioned, for example, that as a medical student um, in Berlin in the 1830s, that he spent his time in the library reading books of 18th century mechanics. Uh Aha, that was a clue. In fact, that was one of the most important clues that I picked up on. Uh, Perhaps surprisingly enough, no one who had previously written on Helmholtz had really bothered to try to figure out what Helmholtz might have been reading and what that might have meant to him. One of my early discoveries, and this was kind of a a bingo experience, uh, Googling around, I discovered that there was a a published catalog of the books in the library of the Friedrich Wilhelms Institute that that gave me concrete information on what exactly Helmholtz might have been reading. So although I, I couldn't make, I couldn't be sure that he read absolutely this, I was able to to, to circumscribe quite in, in narrow confines what Helmholtz sources might have been there. And that was important. Um, he also mentioned other things of interest. In other words, uh, for example, the, the question of the vital force. Is there, a, is there a vital force? That is, is there some force of nature peculiar to organic beings is not reducible to the forces of, of physics and chemistry that somehow uh, controls organic development. Um, this field itself, this topic itself underwent a profound transformation in the 1840s in the hands of Eustace Liebig, a very famous German chemist, who plays an important role in this story. Until Liebig got his hands on the topic, The vital force was generally invoked to explain things like growth, differentiation of cells, uh, the, the resistance of the organism to the deleterious effects of the environment and the like. It was not used to explain animal heat or animals exertion of motion, of force. Liebig was the person who invoked, or I should say, who criticized the vital force for Ostensibly explaining animal heat and animal motion, it had never been invoked for that before. Helmholtz read this and saw that the if he, if he was to defeat the concept of a vital force in the most general way, what he had to do was to um, prove an ontology that is, you know, what is real in the world. What what kinds of forces and particles are real in the world? And he, what Helmholtz wanted to do was to define what might legally exist in, in the world in such a way that the vital force would be impossible. Um, and his goal th- th- this is is fairly is, is somewhat obscure. But uh, one of Helmholtz's contemporaries, uh, the physicist Rudolf Clausius, perceived this quite perceptively. He might have been the only person who perceived it at the time, that Helmholtz's purpose in writing on the conservation of force was not to defend a new principle in physics. Indeed, one of the things I did, uh, one of the questions I asked uh, asked was, what did Helmholtz think he was doing and nowhere in Helmholtz's several descriptions of what he was doing does he say that my purpose was to introduce a new fi- principle into physics of the conservation of force. He never says that. But what he was trying to do was to use something like the conservation of force as what, uh, uh, what um, mathematicians would call a, l- a lemma, an auxiliary theorem to be proved on the way home to, th- to what you really want to show in order to demonstrate that the only kinds of forces that might exist in nature are attractive and repulsive forces acting in a direct line um, between the particles. That was that was Helmholtz's primary goal. Um, it was only in his interaction with other people doing <laughs> what in the event emerged as similar studies that he transformed what he thought he was doing from that rather narrower topic to something like the conservation of energy. But let me pause again and, and throw it back to you.
1: Thank you. Well, this is uh, definitely one of the aspects of, uh, of the work. I personally found the most fascinating, uh, the effort uh, and uh, the, to really uh, try to think uh, how and what uh, scientists, uh, well, Helmholtz and uh, his fellow colleagues uh, were thinking about to try to uh, imagine the uh, mentality and uh, references uh, and of uh, uh, of uh, scientists and the uh, readers of Helmut's back uh, back uh, uh, then, and uh, which definitely it's uh, a lesson of methodology for uh, uh, every historian of uh, of uh, science. Um, but, uh, well, I would like to ask you uh, something about uh, the, how the, mm, well, it was not a book, in, uh, it's uh, uh, the essay that Helmholt published in uh, 1847 was, uh, wh- what kind of reactions uh, uh, did it uh, provoke the, uh, in uh, the, uh, just the, uh, Immediately when it, uh, when it when it uh, appeared, because uh, well, uh, there is a, a bit of uh, um, uh, uh, let's say decalage between uh, how uh, the importance that uh, uh, today is uh, uh, attributed to uh, this work and uh, the way it was uh, uh, received in uh, uh, immediately.
0: Sure. Um... Helmholtz's work was not initially received very well by physicists. It was largely ignored. Again, partly because it didn't look like physics to the average physicist of the day. It looked like mechanics, and we don't deal with mechanics in physics. So that was a problem. Uh, Helmholtz's work could only be assimilated into physics when physics had been transformed partly as a result of precisely the conservation of energy. I, I did look as best I could at people's reactions. Uh, unfortunately, people rarely say why they don't accept something. Uh, one of the most uh, useful insights I glean was from Rudolf Clausius that I mentioned a moment ago. Uh, Clausius was an associate, a colleague of Helmholtz's in Berlin. He was as well-trained in physics and mathematics also as anyone could be at the time. And yet, he every virtually every comment he made regarding Helmholtz's work was critical. He didn't accept it. He didn't see its importance. One reason for this was, again, alongside uh, Clausius's recognition that what Helmholtz was mostly interested in was an ontological question, that is, what is the nature of matter and its forces clausius believed that certain phenomena of elasticity implied that there were forces in nature that depended on the direction between the part of the line between the particles and if that's true then helmholtz's work has to be false it can't be true so that was one reason that one prominent physicist didn't get on the the helmholtzian, helmholtzian bandwagon uh, I won't mention others except to say that it, it's, it's enthusiastic. It's often difficult to say why they weren't enthusiastic. Uh, look, I will give one example, a uh, Danish physicist, Juvius Thomson. Uh, when he translated uh, Helmholtz's essay of 1854 on the interaction of natural forces, he translated it into Danish he omitted in his translation, every explicit reference to the conservation of force. Wow. <laughs> uh, why did he do that? Well, I'm not really sure. There's only, there's only a limit to, you know, to what an historian can, um, can figure out. To go back to the reception, there, there was some positive reception, however, uh, primarily uh, physiologists based in, in in Berlin, Emil Dubois, Raymond. Who in uh, 1848, I believe it was, published the first volume of his work on animal electricity. In the introduction of, he discussed at great length Helmholtz's work on the conservation of energy and how it rendered untenable any notion of an organic force. Uh, other of kind of Berlin associated physiologists also were enthusiastic about Helmholtz, and one can See, One can see see why. In the 18, beginning in the late 1830s, but primarily in the 1840s in Germany, uh, physiology was undergoing a major transformation. Uh, It was a group of people who were very self-conscious about trying to transform physiology and medicine in the direction of what they thought was science. That is reduction to physics and chemistry as much as possible. Uh, That meant, of course, excluding something like the vital, the, the vital force. Uh, a general kind of background point is important here. Until the 1840s really, physiologists had no energetic understanding of the organism. In other words, in terms of change, uh, you consume matter, and that's used in repairing the body. And then it's excreted. There were processes processes of material exchange that were of most interest. <laughs> uh, let me take a small digression uh, to illustrate this with a movie a, a few years ago on the Iron Man. This was a junkyard chomping down on pieces of iron. And What struck me about that is this is entirely typical of the physiology of the 1830s because the question was not cheap but what was the iron man's source of food of material anyway it took it was it, it was, a, it was a, a crucial development in physiology of the 1840s to think energetically that is what is it that produces heat what is it that produces motion and in this context energy whatever your terminology is was useful to physiologists because they could use it as a way of reinterpreting their discipline, reinterpreting their science, of shifting attention away from simply processes of material exchange to processes of energetic exchange, if I may, if I may use that phrase. Which is to say that it's not surprising that it was physiologists who were earliest most enthusiastic about Helmholtz. Helmholtz's work, not only because Helmholtz was at the time also himself a medical doctor. He was not yet officially a physicist. That was a long time of coming. Uh, and he knew plenty of these people uh, in, Ber- in Berlin uh, personally. Um, hold on. Was, <laughs> I-, I lost my thought for a second. Um, yes, was, uh,
1: you, you were... were uh, Yes, you were you were discussing about the positive uh, reaction of uh, of uh, physiologists uh, and uh, the, the the reasons uh, why they welcomed uh, uh, Helmut's uh, uh,
0: approach. And, oh, yeah. Uh, oh yeah, okay. I, I remember what I wanted to add to that. Oops, <laughs> sorry. Uh, to begin with a generalization, which I think is is generally valid, is that scientists like possible In other words, don't assume anything more than you need to assume to do what you want to do. And this applied very centrally to the first law of thermodynamics, which was the equivalence between heat and work. Uh, Thermodynamicists, again, people interested in the conservation of energy, it didn't get them anything because energy was not a generalizable concept to them at that point. What they needed essentially was the equivalence between heat and work, and that was enough. And that being enough, there was no pressure early on for the expansion of thermodynamics to include as a principle something like the conservation of energy. It didn't get them anything is what I'm trying to say. And so scientists' receptivity to Helmholtz's work stemmed in large part from what they could get from it. And again, it was physiologists Who got something argumentatively from the conservation of energy. And it was physicists who did not yet see how they were going to get anything out of it. That took a while. If I perhaps I I should add here uh, another point about reception, the Polish sociologist of science, Ludwig Fleck, brilliant man, I think, argued in the the 1930s that one of the ways in which scientific knowledge becomes fixed and affirmed was by its popular presentation. The idea being in part that uh, when a scientist addresses him or herself to a general public, well, they they get, they get rid of all the qualifications and complications and, and, and uh, make simple, clear assertions. Well, one of the things I found, I was not the first person to notice this, but perhaps the first person to to lay it out in such detail is that the, the route by which, <laughs> let me interrupt myself and back up. I, I began by noting that one of the things that interests me was why people believe what they do. Why do people accept what they do? And the, the question here is, why do people think the conservation of energy was worth anything, was interesting? And one of the prime reasons for that in kind of the intermediate period until you get to its incorporation into physics more explicitly in the later decades of the century, was that the conservation of energy enabled writers to tell convincing global stories. In other words, the sun produces heat and light energy, which it sends to the earth. Plants absorb sunlight and store it as chemical energy Uh, animals eat plants and transform that chemical energy into, um, into heat and the performance of work, et cetera, et cetera. In other words, the conservation of energy enabled one to tell really cosmic stories in a convincing way that tied together a huge number of otherwise isolated phenomena. And that's one of the things that principally made it convincing, not its application to the solution of this or that problem in physics.
1: Yes, and uh, well, in uh, uh, in the, the the section of your book in which you uh, you describe the popular uh, publications about uh, dealing with the conservation of energy. You, you begin, if I'm not mistaken, telling that Helmholtz was not the only show in town. <laughs> and that sure. uh, by the 50s, uh, uh, a lot of works uh, dealing with this very question were published and uh, uh, in, uh, not just in Germany, but also in, uh, in the United Kingdom, in France and, uh, and so on. But uh, you say also they, they didn't consider Helmholtz at all. And that is quite, quite puzzling.
0: Yes. Uh, let me comment on what you said just a second ago. You know, one of the figures who would be important in a broader study than just Helmholtz was uh, uh, William Robert Grove, the Englishman who published the book on the correlation of physical forces. Uh, Helmholtz's 1854 address at Königsberg, which I, I mentioned a moment ago, on the interaction of natural forces. Helmholtz's choice of the word, it's inter, interaction, Uh, was probably intended to translate Groves' uh, correlation. What's interesting about this, and I I can't remember the exact dates off the top of my head, but Helmholtz reviewed the translation of Groves' work twice in this journal, The the Progress uh, Progress in Physics. The first time around, uh, this might have been 1852, I'm not sure of the date, the first time around, Helmholtz didn't even recognize that Grove was talking about the same thing. Uh, It's only a few years later that Helmholtz recognized, or I should say expanded his own understanding of what he was doing to think, aha, this guy Grove and I, we're really talking about the same kind of thing. And that's when he began to shift to thinking in terms of a broad conception of the conservation of energy Away from the rather narrowly framed issues that was that was rooted in rational mechanics, let me give another example of this. I, I dealt at length with this this in, in the book in, in ways that my own understanding was tra- was in the process of transforming even as the book was 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 being printed. Uh, one of the the topics that interested me and that that led me to choose Helmholtz, like I I had written a book on Robert Meyer and the conservation of energy. And their relationship was interesting in in a whole lot of ways. And I wanted to to explore that. Uh, One of the curious things about their relationship was that, uh, well, Meyer enters appreciably into this story in terms of a book of his of 1845. Uh, Helmholtz Helmholtz reviewed that book very briefly. Well, I should say he didn't review it. He dismissed it rather out of hand, in his own review, as nothing really new going on here, and that's curious because there really was a lot going on that was new in in Meyer's book, and you know why didn't Helmholtz recognize it? And I wrestled with this problem for a long time. Uh, you know, one solution that was argued by a minor physicist toward the end of the 19th century was that Helmholtz was basically dishonest. He wanted to suppress all knowledge of what Meyer was doing. To to enhance the significance of his own work. Well, I, I won't say that Helmholtz was above doing that, but I think that's probably not a sufficient explanation of what was going on. I I think it's it, it's more than it's more than likely that the reason that Helmholtz dismissed Meyer's work, which is a brilliant work, a brilliant work, was that he didn't see them talking about the same thing. <laughs> he, uh, It wasn't until years later that Helmholtz had transformed his own thinking of what he was writing about that he might have been able to see that he and Meyer and Grove were talking about the same thing that is, the conservation of force, the conservation of energy. So it's in this sense that I say that, you know, Helmholtz is, if we talk about, you know, a science, uh, I'm sorry, historians of science these days don't have much truck with the concept of discovery. It's it's problematic in, in multiple ways. But if we can relax ourselves a little bit, one could, re- one could make a plausible argument that Helmos didn't discover the conservation of energy until the 1850s uh, as a result of his interaction with other like-spirited work. Let me pause there.
1: Yes, well, this is uh, definitely an aspect of the history of science that uh, I believe uh, the public uh, do not doesn't suspect the existence <laughs> out because uh, well we imagine uh, scientists uh, working very straightforward and uh, uh, not uh, and being uh, speaking more or less all uh, the same languages but uh, well. Uh, they are human beings, <laughs> and uh, and uh, they they can behave in a way that shall be, could be surprising for uh, for us that might have a, a kind of idealized uh, image of uh, of uh, of them. But uh, when uh, finally the uh, Helmut's work uh, was uh, uh, accepted, let's say by by physicists, and uh, so you, you say that it was by the end of uh, the last decades of the uh, of, uh, of the century. So uh, how did it uh, happen, and what was Helmut's uh, role uh, in uh, in uh, uh, this uh, in this process?
0: Sure, um, the way I tried to track that as best I could was looking at textbooks, Um, because when something appears in textbooks, you can be sure that it has become accepted knowledge. Now, obviously there's been stuff going on before that, but textbooks are a really good measure of the extent to which a particular idea is broadly accepted. And that didn't begin to happen significantly for the conservation of energy till the 1870s. And Helmholtz did play an important role there. Uh, I forget who it was now who's, who noted that um, in order for a scientific theory, an idea to be believable, I'm sorry, in order to be accepted, it has to be believable. I, 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 this is one of the things that was going on when I spoke a moment ago about the the cosmic stories that the, that the conservation was energy was, uh, was able to tell. But at the other end of the spectrum, so to speak, at, at the narrow end, um, Helmholtz's work made sense precisely because one of the uh, most important long-scale, uh, large-scale developments in physics in the 19th century, and, and, and indeed it's a heritage we still live with, was materialism was mechanism. The idea that the world is composed ultimately only of particles endowed with certain kinds of forces. And if you believe that, then Helmholtz's approach to proving the conservation of energy is valid. That is, and, and this, is, this was true in, 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 uh, in 18th century mechanics. If that's your ontology, that is, if the world consists only of particles endowed with certain kinds of forces, then energy, as you now have to define it, will be conserved. So that the conservation of energy uh, made sense in terms of the kind of world that physicists came to believe must be real. And that was perhaps, uh, you know, the most important conceptual route. That enabled Helmholtz's work to be assimilated into textbooks of physics.
1: Yes, this is this is uh, well another uh, another aspect that it's uh, it's really fascinating of this uh, of the of this uh, this uh, story. Uh, I have another couple of questions, so um, maybe it's, uh, uh, well, one of the aspects that I find personally, I found very uh, intriguing in the, your work, uh, even if it appears like, uh, uh, like in the background uh, is that, uh, uh, you show how, through the work that Helmholtz uh, did, that brought him to the uh, to the formulation of the principle of conservation of energy. Well, we can understand uh, what was Helmholtz's idea about uh, what is science for, what is the goal of uh, of science, and uh, well, this is uh, in, in in my opinion, uh, 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 well, a question that. Uh, after this way in isolation might sound uh, naive, but uh, when we see it uh, in uh, an operational context, uh, like the one you uh, you describe, uh, takes uh, all another sense and another uh, another dimension. So, can we? Uh, what can we say? What can we tell about the uh, Helmholtz idea of uh, what uh, was the work of a scientist for or the work of science?
0: Well, you know, my my colleague uh, David Kahan has dealt uh, uh, um, extensively with this topic. That that Helmholtz saw science as central to the well, the process of general enlightenment. Uh, It had technological aspects. It was part of general culture uh, and whatnot. Alas, the conservation of energy didn't play any role that I can see in Helmholtz's larger picture of what, of the meaning of science for society in general. It was rather narrowly circumscribed within a technical area of science. And I don't think it actually played to his otherwise larger concerns about the role of science in society. So I, I, didn't, I didn't have an occasion to deal with that because I didn't think it was relevant.
1: Yes, thank you. <laughs> And uh, well, my last question is about uh, what uh, topic, uh, what uh, are you working on uh, right uh, now? If it is uh, okay for you to, to share this, uh, this, uh, this information.
0: Sure. Uh, let me make one other comment before I answer that. Helmholtz's attitude towards the conservation of energy is really peculiar. Um, Helmholtz was an epistemologist, that is he cared deeply about the origins and the grounding of scientific theories. Uh, Are they based in experience? Are they based in mathematics? Where are they based? And he never found an adequate answer to that question with regard to the conservation of energy. It's really curious. Um, He gave a talk, uh, well, I should say an introduction to a lecture series, I forget whether this was the 1870s or 80s, I forget just when, in which he outlined the major developments in physics in the 19th century. And he doesn't mention the conservation of energy. <laughs> in the uh, in the 1780s and 90s in particular, there was great interest, broad interest among scientists and about philosophically, uh, I'm sorry, scientifically interested philosophers. Uh, about the nature of knowledge, and the the conservation of energy uh, played an important role here because it was seemingly a basic principle. Helmholtz was the most famous person in Germany with regard to the conservation of energy. He had published on epistemological issues. He said not a word on this topic. He never engaged the discussion, uh, whereas no one's opinion would have been greeted with more (laughs) with more approval than his. And I think the reason is he didn't know what to say. He didn't know what to do with the conservation of energy. Uh, It didn't follow strictly in a a mathematical way. And Helmholtz's understanding of the grounding of science epistemology, to have a place for abstract principles as did Einstein. So the irony is that although Helmholtz is clearly one of the originators of the idea of the conservation of energy, and his understanding of it was one of the primary routes by which it entered textbooks and was accepted. At the end of the day, he didn't know what to do with it. That's your question. Well, (laughs) uh, when my book appeared, uh, I wondered really, uh, Mm -hmm. do I have a scholarly existence? And answering the question, I, I began work on another topic, on another, I should say another book. Uh, guess what? It's on the conservation of energy. Um, and my, my jumping off point here was a, a famous article that Thomas Kuhn wrote uh, in 1959 entitled Energy Conservation as an Example of Simultaneous Discovery. Well, the notion of, of discovery, as I said, is problematic, let alone simultaneous discovery. So I don't really go into that. But what Kuhn tried to do was to explain why over a span of about 10 years, 10 or 12 people came up with ideas that we see as clustered around the conservation of energy. Why' do I have to understand what, what larger societal or scientific circumstances existed that but that, that, a terrible job. But the question remains, and I want to do a better job. So I've, I've expanded my set of scientists from a dozen to I don't know maybe 20, and I'm now to see if I can understand why in a general way so many people um, seem to have been coming up with the related ideas during that time period. And that's what I'm working on.
1: Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much, uh, Professor Kaneva, for your uh, for your time, for this uh, this fascinating uh, conversation. So uh, I remember uh, Kenneth Kaneva, Helmholtz and the Conservation of Energy, MIT Press uh, 2021. Thank you so much, and uh, looking forward to uh, see you again uh, another time.
0: Thank you.